Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue our verse-by-verse expositional series in the book of Romans, we now find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. I would invite everyone to open their Bibles with me so we can study together. Now before we dive in, I don't wish that anyone gets lost in the details, so let us remember the big picture. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 overall, the Apostle Paul makes an argument. That argument is that all of humankind is guilty, and he explains multiple reasons why. This argument makes plain why the Lord's judgment on the guilty is just. This argument also explains why God manifested His righteousness in the gospel. The reason why is because man was incapable of meriting the righteousness that God demands, so God revealed His own righteousness through His Son. Keep this in mind as we unpack Romans chapter 1 verse 19. It is one verse at the beginning of the Apostles' argument that runs into chapter 3. Our text begins to educate us about the universal depravity of man, which ultimately points forward to the Savior of man, Jesus Christ. So verse 19 is actually a dependent clause based on the preceding verse, so I will read verses 18 to 20. Those verses say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." What we established last time is that the cardinal sin that provokes God's wrath is truth suppression. In other words, men take what they do know about God, as limited as it may be, and then actively hold that truth down. The consequences of that truth, of course, is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. The point is that God's wrath is not revealed against people who are ignorant. Rather, it is revealed against men who know some form of God's truth, but they hold it down and restrain it because they don't want to live in subjection to that truth. The question now becomes, why does God specifically reveal His wrath against truth suppressors? Verse 19 tells us, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, it is clear that these men know the truth because God is the one who made His truth plain and unmistakable in the first place. Verse 19 says that truth suppressors suppress that which is known about God. Now what exactly is known about the Lord? Quite simply, what is known is a basic awareness of the reality of God. It's knowing that God exists plus some specifics. It means being aware that God has particular attributes, that He has power, and that He is otherworldly. This basic knowledge therefore informs a man that God really is capital G God, and God isn't a pushover who can be ignored. 
that which is known about God does not refer to a deep, intimate knowledge of the Lord, nor does it refer to a comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is or what the gospel is. So although this knowledge is not extensive, it is still an awareness which men hold down. So now we are clear what the apostle means when he writes about that which is known about God. Yet verse 19 continues and says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. What does evident within them mean? Verse 20 clarifies precisely what is made evident within man, God's attributes, his power, and his nature. That is, all human beings can see what God has done in creation on the outside and then have a basic yet clear understanding of God on the inside. God's revelation without makes knowledge of God plain within. God reveals himself in the big Bible of nature. It was Tertullian who once said that people did not learn about God starting with the small Bible in Genesis 1.1. They already had the big Bible of all of creation. And since the beginning of time, men have been able to look around and obtain a knowledge of the invisible God through visible creation. This revelation is not hidden or kept a secret. It is a massive advertisement that literally broadcasts over the whole world. God therefore never leaves himself without a witness. Accordingly, the full text of verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Although God has made himself evident to man through the natural world, he has not revealed himself in a special manner. He has only revealed himself generally. That is to say, no one can ever learn about Christ, the cross, love, grace, or the gospel by looking up at the night sky. Moreover, this natural revelation is universal, objective, and external. External revelation is there and comprehended internally. That is, God gives a man the ability to see, touch, hear, taste, and smell. A man can investigate the world around him and begin using his God-given reason. He can gaze at the beautiful portrait of nature and ask, where did all this come from? Or, what explains the patterns? Or, why is everything interdependent? Or, who designed life? Using his senses, he can subsequently arrive at a reasonable conclusion and say, God is real, and who he is, is evident in his works. Furthermore, God is so smart, his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature are always being manifest in the world. Day after day, creation provides a fresh new testimony of the God who created. Thus, every human being has a continual, ongoing testimony that supplies a knowledge about God. This testimony transcends time, culture, language, geography, and national borders. Why is that? Because all people live in the same world, the same world in which God's works are clearly seen. This now begs the question, if the reality of God has been made evident to all people by God himself, then why do some people reject God? That answer is simple, because they don't want God, because they simply just don't like the God they know is real. It's not a rational rejection, it's an emotional one. It's not a reasonable objection, it's a rejection based on desire. 
if you had access to a microscope and some time, you could discover hundreds of evidences for God just by looking at one single cell. For example, the fact that it contains specified complex information and the fact that it executes highly specified functions that work as part of a cooperative whole. Any reasonable person can weigh all the overwhelming evidence and say, yes, God is real and what he made tells us something about him. But what would an unreasonable person say? They would reject God despite the evidence because they just don't like him. There is an inherent tendency of man to want to rule himself. He wants to be king of earth and sovereign over all that he sees. The problem is that there is a king of heaven who rules forever and ever. That king is unchanging and will never be dethroned. Thus, once a man recognizes the truth that God is God, that means he cannot be sovereign, which is offensive. Equally offensive is God's holiness. That holiness means God is not like us and so separate that he is in a category all by himself. A person cannot therefore reject God on intellectual grounds, so they must reject him on desire and simply refuse to worship the Lord. This point is relevant as it pertains to apologetics. Now for those of you who are unfamiliar, apologetics is not the art of making an apology. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which simply means speaking in defense. Christian apologists therefore defend the truth claims of the Christian faith. Now, if you search for apologists on the internet, what you will find are a lot of people who call themselves apologists who are not actually doing apologetics. What you will find are many people not defending. Instead, they are on offense trying to win arguments by being more clever, more witty, or more persuasive. Many of these arguments or debates tend to be with atheists, agnostics, or people of different faiths. In a typical back and forth, one person makes a remark, another person counters, and so they go around and around. I personally think many of such encounters are set up not to spread truth, but to merely entertain people for an hour or so. Regardless, my point is this. What Romans 1 tells us is that people do not reject God based on facts, data, evidence, proofs, or good arguments. People reject God because they don't like Him. Psalm 14 verse 1 does not say, the fool reasons with his mind. It states, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's just that simple. Rejection of God at its core has nothing to do with intellect, education, reason, or logic. It has everything to do with the human heart. This means that you can present the most sound, persuasive, airtight arguments from now until the second coming of Christ, and the non-believer to whom you are speaking will not budge. Why? Because the quote-unquote facts will not make any difference. It's a heart problem, not a head problem, and the only thing that changes the human heart is the Word of God. What Romans 1.19 tells us is that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. This means that the so-called non-believer, in a particular sense, actually believes. Meaning, they can hold down what they already know about God, but they cannot totally get rid of the knowledge that God made plain to them. In fact, in a situation like this, where the person suppresses the truth, the more quote-unquote facts they are exposed to may actually make matters worse. Why is that? 
because all the person may therein do is further suppress every new truth they hear. Man is a fallen creature. His problem is never that he does not know God exists. His problem is that he despises the God that he already knows. Hence, Paul's major point is that man is without excuse because he restrains what has been clearly and plainly made evident to him. Now we've already briefly touched upon verse 20, but let's read it again. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 20 is very interesting because it tells us that since the world began, evidence of God's work has been clearly seen. What does this mean? I think what Paul is saying here is that the sheer fact that the world exists is demonstrable proof of not only God, but also who God is, his power, and his nature. The fact that God created it all means he's creative. The fact that he made everything on such a grand scale means he has the power to do so. And the fact that he continues to care for creation in his day-to-day activities of providence tells us that he is a loving, caring God who stoops down in order to tend to the needs of his creatures. Accordingly, Psalm number 104 and 147 verses 7 to 11 are songs of praise that talk about God's providential care for his creation. Also see Acts chapter 14 verses 15 to 17. I just mentioned that the act of creation itself testifies the glory of God. How so? Because without God, there is no creation. The fact that something exists points to the someone who existed first to make it. The fact that there is something rather than nothing means in the beginning there was more than nothing. That is to say, if there ever was nothing at the beginning, then the most we could ever expect now is nothing. As the saying in Latin goes, ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing, nothing comes. The creation of creation testifies to the glory and majesty of the Lord. So when those with a godless worldview attempt to explain where the world came from, what types of ideas do they suggest? Ideas that suppress the truth and purposely try to rob God of his glory. Such ideas try to rationalize and excuse those who are without excuse. Such ideas suggest that God did not create the world and so we ought not to pay him any mind and live our own lives. And such ideas are invariably nonsensical. For example, creation could not have created itself because in order to self-create, you must first exist. This still begs the question of where creation came from. The world does not exist by chance because chance is not a force. It has no creative power in and of itself. Chance only describes the probability of something happening when other forces are active. Citing chance as the cause of anything only exposes the person making the argument is ignorant of the true cause. Furthermore, creation has not always been here. In fact, some of the biggest and brightest minds in the world believe that the universe went bang at some point a long, long time ago. Which proves what? That the universe had a birthday because it had a beginning. This means it was not always here. So where did creation come from? 
Every effect must have a cause. So what caused the grand effect of creation? The Bible says in the beginning, there was God and God alone. He said, let there be light. And creation came into existence. Everything that God made subsequently exists contingently, meaning it exists because of God. Only the Lord exists necessarily, meaning He exists as a function of His own nature. God cannot not exist. The God whose name is I Am refers to the reality that He always is. The world was made by someone self-existent who is the Lord our God. He is the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover that caused the universe. Reality tells us that being only comes from being, and the fact that creation exists points directly back to the God of the Bible. And because God made creation only once in a grand display of power, I think the eternal power of God Paul writes about in verse 20 best applies to the original act of creation. This does not dismiss the fact that God's power continues to structure and govern the universe. An example of such continuance is that we have fixed natural laws. These laws did not pop out of nowhere. They were created and are held in place by God himself. But even more than the act of creation, we also see two other things in the present world that leave men without excuse. Number one, God's invisible attributes, and number two, his divine nature. In other words, in creation, we see not only what God made, but also how he provides for creation. God providing for creation is also known as his providence. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines providence as the following, quote, Providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but rather works within that creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. End quote. So providence reveals God's attributes and nature. For example, God is radically pro-life, which is why he designed a world that abundantly supports life of multiple different kinds on multiple different levels. For example, God sends forth springs of water in which fish can live and from which animals may drink. This reveals that God is considerate and kind. God causes grass to grow, which feeds cattle. He also causes plants to grow, which man can eat and plant. This reveals that God is gracious and thoughtful. When a person looks up at the heavenly expanse, they can observe that the moon is for seasons and that the stars in the night sky are useful for navigation. This reveals that God is majestic and attentive. And God made the rains to fall from heaven and that water sustains life. This reveals that God is loving and nurturing. Even before the scientific advancements of the modern era, men of old looked around them and saw evidences of God everywhere. Hence, this is what David meant when in Psalm 19.1 he said, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. So what Romans 1.19 has taught us is that since the beginning of time, God has made himself evident in creation so that every human being is without excuse. No one can say, I did not know, because everyone does know. God made sure of that. God holds people accountable based on what they do know, not based upon what they do not know. 
Yet, even though God says men are without excuse, this still does not stop men from concocting their own excuses. On the one hand, some people do not make excuses and then turn away from religion. They use religion as their excuse, meaning they turn toward religion to satisfy the self, all the while keeping God out of the picture. James Montgomery Boy says it best in his commentary on Romans, quote, We invent religion not because we are seeking God, but because we are running away from Him, end quote. On the other hand, some people overtly walk away from God and rationalize their decision with excuses. They say things like, the Bible is a myth, or the Bible is full of holes, or all religions say the same thing, or there is not sufficient evidence for God, or I don't like church because the people in it are mean. Although these are many different statements, they all originate from the same place. They are feeble attempts for people to get themselves off the hook. In fact, a very popular excuse goes something like this. I cannot believe in God when I see all the evil in the world. The superficial logic behind the statement is that if God is real, then how could he allow bad things in the world, like murder, sex trafficking, and infanticide? What many people fail to realize about this excuse is that it is based on an assumption. It assumes that God is good. Therefore, why would a God who is good allow evil in the world? After all, if God was an evil tyrant, then witnessing a world chock full of darkness would be expected. Cognizant of this assumption, if someone were to ask, why evil, my reflexive response is, where good? That is, to know what evil is, they must first know what good is. And if a person knows what good is, the next question to ask is where they obtained their idea of good from. The final question to ask is where do they develop their assumption that God is good? God has told us that he has made himself evident within all men. And when he does, people have an innate sense that God is good because he is and because he is very real. People have an innate sense that God is good because God made that evident within them. Hence, even when men make excuses like there's so much evil in the world, they are in actuality proving that they are without excuse. So Romans 1.19 tells us that all are without excuse. This now means that God's judgment and subsequent condemnation of man is fair and just. This also means that God's free offer of grace in the gospel is not fair. God did not have to save anyone, but he did. And he did it by accomplishing salvation by the shedding of his blood on the cross. It was not fair that men crucify Jesus, but God allowed it to happen in order to redeem his elect. If the grace of God were ever fair, then it would not be grace. This will end our discussion of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. What we have established today is the fact that the rejection of God is universal, and those who reject God are all without excuse. Yet, no one rejects God and remains the same. Similarly, no one is regenerated by God and remains the same. So, beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, what the Apostle Paul will describe are the results of man's rejection of God. 
That is, now that we know men suppress the truth of God in their hearts, we will bear witness to how that truth suppression manifests in attitudes, character, and behavior. We will thus learn why the world is the way that it is and why men are the way that they are. We begin in Romans 121 next time. Until then. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.